Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Rick Burke. Rick is the co-founder and executive editor of STAT. Everyone who listens to The Long Run probably already reads STAT. If you don't, you should. It's become a go-to publication for breaking news, features, and in-depth investigative reporting around the world of biotech and healthcare. John Henry, the billionaire investor and owner of the Boston Red Sox, bankrolled STAT from the beginning in 2015. He had taken an interest in media through his acquisition of Boston Globe Media. Boston clearly had a thriving life sciences and healthcare economy at the time, and he noticed that it wasn't being covered by the media in the kind of breadth and depth it deserved. There's a reason for that. The media industry was in crisis. The online business models of the early 21st century were failing. Newspapers, previously the beating heart of the journalistic enterprise, had shed 60 to 70% of their workforce over the past 20 years nationwide. The challenge for STAT in the online era was to create not only a quality outlet for independent journalism about life sciences, but to do so with a sustainable business model that could support it. Rick, a veteran of the New York Times, had just come off of a stint at Politico. He was new to life sciences, but he quickly discovered there were a lot of amazing stories to tell. This was a challenge he could sink his teeth into. Nearly eight years later, STAT has established a reputation for journalistic excellence. Equally important, it has created a sustainable business model. STAT is now in position to hire more journalists and extend its ambitions into new coverage areas and geographies. Rick deserves a lot of credit for this. This conversation hits close to home for me. I started Timmerman Report eight years ago. I went against the prevailing winds of the time, starting with an online subscription model. This was about nine months before the launch of STAT. Rick and I saw a lot of the same challenges at the same time, and we talked about this idea for STAT before it even had a name. I played a small role in the early days of STAT, creating and hosting the Signal podcast with Meg Terrell. It was really fun to catch up with Rick years later. We can both breathe a sigh of relief that things have improved quite a bit in the media business. The biotech industry really does need quality reporting to help people make good decisions and to hold people accountable when necessary. This conversation is a rare peek behind the curtain of our industry, which I think many people in biotech seldom think about, but will find quite illuminating. And now for a word from the sponsor of the long run, the BioCEO and Investor Conference. Now in its 25th year, the BioCEO and Investor Conference is a premier event connecting biotech leaders from established and emerging public and private companies with the investor and banking communities. You can expect limitless networking, on-point sessions crafted by impressive industry experts, polished company presentations, and making important connections powered by bio one-on-one partnering. We look forward to seeing you February 6 to 9 in New York and virtually. Register now at bio.org slash CEO. And I'll add that I've attended BioCEO a few times, most recently in February of 2020 in New York. I interviewed Jeremy Levin there for an episode of the Long Run Podcast when he was bio chairman. It's the kind of meeting where biotech newsmakers can have productive dialogues with investors and other key players. Again, to register, go to bio.org slash CEO. Now, if you like listening to The Long Run, you'll love a subscription to Timmerman Report. This is where you can read my in-depth reports on the most interesting startups in biotech, my regular Friday Front Points column that covers the issues of the week, plus insightful coverage of current topics from a rotating cast of contributing writers. Individual subscriptions are available on a monthly, quarterly, or annual basis. Group subscriptions get a license for companies that have more than one reader. Group subscriptions are available at a discount. Go to TimmermanReport.com and click on subscribe for more. And for sponsorship opportunities on the Long Run Podcast, or to inquire about bringing me to your company for a speaking engagement, 
see my business development representative, Stephanie Barnes. Go to Timmerman Report and hit contact. Now, please join me and Rick Burke on the long run. Rick Burke, welcome to the long run. Thank you, Luke. Happy to be here. So regular listeners will know that it's it's unusual to have a media person on this show. It's happened maybe once before. But I think it's great to have you on the show here today, Rick, because STAT has really become an integral part of the biopharmaceutical community and really the larger healthcare world with your quality journalism. There's an entrepreneurial success story here, too, which I think listeners will appreciate hearing from you about that. So I'm really excited to get started. Well, thanks for having me. I'm I'm excited as well. So Rick, just to get started, I'd like to introduce listeners to the person, how you got started on your journey. So where did you grow up? I grew up in, I was born in Washington, D.C., grew up in Bethesda, Maryland, went to school there, went to college at the University of Michigan, and then Columbia Journalism School in New York after that. Okay, so you're originally from D.C. Not, not that right. many people can say that. <laughs> right, that's right. That's right. What, what did your mom and dad do? What brought them there? My my parents actually met at a table at the Library of Congress, and they were at like at you know opposite ends of the table, and that's where they met. My my father was a an economist at the Department of Justice, so he worked for the government most of his career. And my mother was a social worker dealing with mostly elderly people. Okay. Okay. So uh, politics is part of the the environment there. Was yeah, that think, just an early interest for you? Yeah, I think my, my early interests were, I, I was always interested in government and politics because I kind of grew up with that. I, growing up there, you do. But but my real interest was always journalism. And I don't, I, I don't know where it, came from. But when I was in the third grade, I started my own like family newspaper, which then changed into a elementary school newspaper, which I started. And then I was editor of the junior high school paper, the high school paper. So it was just my entire life, this passion for not just being a reporter and writing and editing stories, but the whole packaging of and design and the whole everything, the whole gestalt of journalism. And, and producing something. That's back when it was ink on paper. Right, right. In <laughs> fact, my my elementary school paper was like a mimeograph. If any of your listeners remember mimeographs. So you, you decided that this is, it starts as a passion. It's, it's a hobby. It's a curiosity right. as a kid. But when did it become your idea that you're going to make a career out of this? Well, it was always a passion. And then my father thought it wasn't a good profession to be in. He thought I should be a lawyer or do something more lucrative. So I kind of listened to him and told myself, this is just a hobby, as you say, Luke, and I'm not going to really go into it. So I went to my my freshman year in college, even though I went to a college that I knew had a really good a school newspaper, I kind of stayed away from the Michigan Daily for the first semester saying, that's, I'm going to resist. I'm going to like be a lawyer or something else. And then I like a few months in, I realized, who am I fooling? Like, this is the only thing I'm like good at that I know how to, that I know how to do that I'm excited about. So I just went, I just plunged back into journalism and, it was, and never looked back after that. So there was this very brief period where I kind of thought I should do something else, but I never really truly believed it. So sorry to date you here, but what years are we talking or the undergraduate years at, at Michigan? Oh, God, you have to do this. You're really dating me, but what the hell? I grew, I was, I graduated in 1980 at Michigan. Okay. So, so late seventies, this is after the whole Woodward and Bernstein water right. experience. I mean, lots, lots of people in your generation were very much inspired and interested in becoming journalists. Right. Well, my claim to fame actually, and the biggest story I ever did was in high school where I co-authored a story with a buddy of mine in high school about how uh, there's an international story about how Nixon, as vice president, was exposed to microwave radiation during the kitchen debates. 
in Moscow. And we wrote this story, this expose in our high school paper, and it got so much attention. It 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 had it came out around when all the president's men came out. And there was stories the AP wrote about it. We were on covers of magazines and newspapers around literally around the world. And part of it was the the connection with the the movie coming out. So it said the young Woodward and Bernstein smell a scoop and go, you know, we, we were really called the young Woodward and, and Bernstein. Some people, some headlines said his name was Mike Gill. So it was like Gil Burke, like Wood, Woodstein, Gil Burke, you know, <laughs> but we went through this whole thing. And then 10 years later, I was at the New York Times and it was, I was pretty new there and our national security reporter I happened to just be sitting there at lunch. Everyone was out to lunch. And he turned to me and said, I just got this great scoop, these classified documents. And Nixon was exposed to radiation during the microwave, during the kitchen debates. And I said, oh, I broke that in high school. And <laughs> and Michael, the national security reporter, you did not. You did. I said, check the clips. And so if he had not, if I had not like warned him off it, he probably would have like, thought he had a, a story that he wrote for, that would be in the times that I had actually, it was actually 10 years old. It's a really great story of that, that thrill of discovery. That's yeah. part of journalism. When you right. find out something that other people don't know and you can publish it and suddenly lots of other people know, and right. then maybe sometimes action happens and, and positive the, or negative. I mean, it's a really heady thing. Yeah, the best thing is you, as you know, like my favorite thing about this business is sort of finding a story that no one else has and it's going to surprise the readers when we publish it. I, I just love doing that. So you, you get some classic journalism training there at Michigan. You go to Columbia. First newspaper job, was this at the Baltimore Evening Sun? Yes. Yeah. And thank you for remembering, for knowing it was the Evening Sun and not the Sun or the Morning Sun. At, at, at that point, there were three newspapers. There was the Morning and Evening Sun, and they were both very, they were same owners, but very competitive. And we were the scrappy evening paper. And the Morning Sun was a more sober-minded paper with, you know, foreign bureaus and much more like they sort of modeled themselves after the New York Times. And then there was the News American, which was a Hearst paper. So that was my first job out of college and I was there for about four and a half years and the the final year of that I was at the in the Washington Bureau. I noticed the part about the evening paper because I, I actually came up at afternoon newspapers as well in Madison, Wisconsin and then in Seattle. Oh, wow. uh, oh, no. <laughs> I mean this will really make me sound old. <laughs> but, <laughs> but but you know as an afternoon paper you were at a disadvantage on breaking news that usually happened in the morning paper. So when something happened of significance to our readers, we had to come up with, you know, the second day story angle right, right. To, to to put it in a larger context and and maybe help the reader interpret, anticipate where things might go next. It was it was actually a really good intellectual muscle to exercise to, to practice, yeah, yeah I especially that, for a young person. Yeah. My, my only issue is we'd come I'd cover like the city council and I'd come back and you had you didn't have to be on deadline because it didn't publish till the next afternoon. So sometimes I'd spend an inordinate amount of time like crafting the top of a story to make it different from what was in the morning paper. So it's, there's something to be said for having quicker deadlines. But but as you said, you have to be creative and inventive in pushing the pushing forward the story to the next like as, as a second day story. Yeah. Yeah. So you got that experience there and then you go off to the New York Times and you're there for 25 plus years. Is that right? Yeah, 28, almost 28 years. Right. And it seems like you did just about everything covering Washington, politics, government. We could talk all day about this, but you ended up leaving there in about 2013, I think. Yeah. What right. what was what was happening then and made you think, gosh, I'm going to do something else with the rest of my career? Well, I was in my final several years at the Times, I was um, 
in various leadership jobs as an editor, I, first in Washington, then in, in New York, from everything from running the day-to-day news operation to running all the feature sections to, you know, so I, I had, and my final job was in video because that was the big new thing for newspapers at the time to get into video. And I loved it there and did, as you said, did many things. What happened at the end is I was, it kind of goes back to where I started with my own newspaper. Like I always kind of wanted to, I'm so interested in the edit side, the business side, the design, the product, everything. And I wanted that kind of bigger oversight role. And it's hard to do in a big place like the Times, especially a place that where things move kind of slowly. And I just wanted to build something. And so I had this opportunity to go to Politico, which was the first, I was the first person they turned to outside the two founders to 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 be executive editors. So so that was a little bit, I was going back to DC. I was in New York at the time. It's going back to DC. It's going back to my political roots, which I, you know, in my years as an editor, I was, you know, in charge of a lot, not just politics, but just across the board, different subject areas. So politics was, it was sort of going back to that, but it's an area obviously that I knew and I was very comfortable in. And I saw the opportunity at Politico to, to do exactly what I was looking for to do in sort of helping raise the game across the enterprise in terms of what political, making the Politico, Politico a little more higher level like the times and sort of a little more ambitious with some of the journalism, but also respecting Politico's fast twitch muscles and the whole how 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 fresh and new it was and steeped in digital. So that was my that was the reason I left to have that opportunity. I didn't stay that long. It was under a year. I had some great wins there. I like you know, I worked closely with Maggie Haberman and some other people who were really great talents. And I started a a sort of a, a, a political annual political political student journalism leadership effort where we would recruit. We would sort of it was an effort to bring diversity to political reporting. And that initiative that I started is still 10 years later going strong, as far as I know. So I there was a lot of good that I learned there, but I also found just just kind of like the times there's there was kind of in a way it was set. The place was set in its ways. And I really, I think, realized from that experience that I needed to just start my own thing. Now, the <laughs> other thing that's happening in the backdrop here is this really seismic shift in in media, in the media business. The Internet had arrived. <laughs> which you sort of alluded to. And here you have the New York Times, this you know, venerable established print first institution that was making the transition to to the web and figuring out how to pay for all of this work. It now you you will know the dates better on this, but I know that there were lots of experiments being run and you know advertising supported free content and then there were paywalls. Sometimes that worked, sometimes it didn't. Micropayments, et cetera. People were trying to figure something out. I, was it around this time, the, the 2012, 2013 timeframe, when the, the, the balance shifted and New York Times was able to get most of its revenue from subscriptions as opposed to advertisements? You know, I don't, I don't know offhand. I don't remember offhand the year, but it was sort of around that period. And it was a long, I mean, in my final several years there, it was a long haul to sort of change the culture and to get people thinking about about digital. I mean, when I was a reporter in my final period as a reporter, the, the Times on the Web, which now looks like prehistoric, the web people were in a separate part of town and everything, and they would pay us, literally pay us to write for the web as opposed to print. It was just, it, it just took a lot to change the culture and the behavior. And I think, and years and years and years, and I think right around that time that you're mentioning is when when more and more people started to realize that this is, this is in the forefront, it's not print. It was a really important shift. I think that, you know, the historians of journalism will look back on that as, as an important, 
important moment when mm-hmm. the business model settled down a bit and the incentives for doing the kind of quality New York Times style journalism became a little clearer right. to the people doing the work that you could actually be rewarded for doing the quality work rather than clickbait type stuff, which was right. really ascendant, kind of out of control. Well, I, th- I think the fact that you can be rewarded for a higher level work is it's dawned on people more recently. I mean, because for years you'd have a lot of places that seemed to get investments and readers and ads that were sort of based on not the highest quality journalism. Yeah. Yeah. So you moved to Politico and that was a digital native publication. And you learned some things surely about from, from that experience, but then John Henry comes calling. How did this happen that you ended up going to what we now call staff? Well, what happened was during the time I left Politico, I was, I think the first phone call I got was from the CEO of Boston Globe Media, who said, John Henry is, and I had met him on another occasion, and he said, John Henry is looking to start a life sciences publication. Would you be interested? And I kind of had a mixed feeling. Like it was like my the first call I got like immediately. And I thought, hmm, like, I don't really know. I don't know life sciences. I don't want to move to Boston. I've never done a startup, but I was kind of intrigued at the beginning because because and, and as time went on, I was interviewing with a lot of other places, and I learned a lot about the digital climate. I learned a lot about these these startups that were doing that were based on clickbait. Some of them talked to me. I talked to nonprofits, I talked to different places. And I, in all the interviews processes, I just thought like none of these really appealed to me. Like there were places I talked to where I I kept coming up with ways, you need to reinvent yourself. You need to change your name. You need to, and then, and, and so I think I had it in my gut that like, I'm kind of the type of person that wants to build something and change it. And, like, why should I? And so, so the, so the, the conversations with John Henry seem more and more like, this is kind of what I want to do. Why do I, for instance, what, if I have someone who's going to let me spend many millions of dollars to build something new, why would I want to go somewhere where they're getting millions of dollars from funders that are requiring you to cover stories a certain way or like, why do I want to get wrapped up in any bureaucratic type of place? So, so more and more, the idea of like building something fresh appealed to me. And I went to Kendall Square during this process and I talked to the folks at the Kendall Square Association just about life sciences and biotech and what was going on. And I remember I was taking notes and I just, I filled up like several sheets of paper, like just frantically taking notes because I realized there were all these great stories that weren't being told. And so, so to me, the combination of, wow, there's, there's fresh territory here of great journalism we can do that even though I don't have a background in, in life sciences, I know how to tell, and I love telling great stories. And this guy is letting me build something new. So that was, that was the appeal. So we talked for several months, but it was kind of like I was ended up being kind of a consultant thinking through this project for a long time, but like it was clear that I was going to do it. Now, for those who don't know, John Henry, billionaire and owner of the Boston Red Sox, among other things, had recently, or I don't know, a couple of years prior, had bought the Boston Globe. And the Boston Globe was like a lot of regional newspapers with this proud history of, of, quality journalism, excellent service to his community, but was on the ropes financially, was in real trouble. And John, along with Jeff Bezos and a few others, were part of this movement of local billionaires, well, wealthy people that were saving some of these media institutions, or hoping to anyway. And and he, he noticed in that community of Boston that there was this incredible story of life science innovation, which was undercovered, I, I guess you could say, right. on, on the local level and certainly the national level. 
And you saw that same thing. Right. And I give John a ton of credit for for seeing this opportunity because he, as you said, he bought the Boston Globe a couple of years earlier. And like probably most people would have like, I just bought the Globe. I see this opportunity for life sciences. Why don't I have the Globe do it? And he, even though he bought the Globe, he thought this really needs to, this is a global story that needs to be told in a bigger way and not bigger than a regional paper and sort of with a global digital publication. So he was really smart to see that and that it shouldn't be under the globe, that should be a separate company sort of adjacent to the globe. And that was his vision. And so, and his interest in this, there were, the reason he bought the globe is he just developed an interest in media and business models and he just was a true believer that there's a future in media if we just find the right model. And he was also very interested in health and medicine. And he had been on the board of Mass General. And he just he's he's very, very interested in these in this coverage. So that combination made him really determined to do this. So you had a clean sheet of paper to start something with, I guess you could say, a venture capitalist of one right. who was committed to the local community, a believer in the health sciences, and you're going to get some runway, I guess, to, to figure this out, like how you're going to do it, what the business model is going to be, who you're going to hire, everything. What are you going to call it? <laughs> right. And. The the funny backstory of what we're going to call it, the original name, which I didn't really go for, but the original name before I kind of weighed in was, you'll love this, Bionomy. <laughs> and there were, there were different original names, but that's the one that stuck. And I said, let's just think on it for a while. And, and, and we, and there was no way I wanted to be editor of Bionomy. <laughs> I laugh a little bit because I previously had worked at Exconomy and oh, that's had, right. been, that's had right. been the first biotech editor there. So I had worked to tr build up that biotech audience in, in years previous. So I, this is funny where uh, I should let the listeners know this is like, this is where you and I met is right, uh, right. when you were in those early days of stat and thinking about your strategy and who you're going to talk to about hiring. My ship had already sailed for Timmerman Report. I had gone all in on my subscription model as a, you know, this is before Substack, right? right. An individual, individual writer focused on a, a given vertical. But I was really intrigued to meet you. And I, I got that, that kid in the candy store sense from you, like the excitement about the ideas. Things like CRISPR were happening and gene therapy and CAR T right. and all you, you were just... You had all this stuff in your notebook. It's like, there's so many stories here. And so I felt that infectious enthusiasm from you as a fellow journalism entrepreneur and decided to take you up. Uh, you had asked me to uh, submit a proposal for uh, some kind of freelance work. And so it, it became the, the, the Signal podcast right. that, that yeah. I did with Meg for, Terrell for a little over a year. So, and, so and that's how we, we met. Right. And and we have in many ways a similar past because you were thinking, you know, around the time I was or maybe a little earlier about sort of new business models and successful subscription models in this world. And and I was paired with you as like you you were like I my whole mission was to find the very best reporters in by and authoritative reporters in biotech and and other areas. And so obviously I talk to you and you had already, as you said, the ship had left the port, but, but, but we, we started that, that signal podcast with you at the beginning. And I, I thought it was a really good podcast. And we learned a lot from that, that experience. And hopefully that we've brought to, to status, we've developed our podcast. We have our read out loud podcast now has Meg is one of the the hosts and obviously in this podcast. So we we've all kind of grown and shared experiences here. This year's bio CEO and investor conference sessions cover the challenges you face, like weathering a challenging market, price control policy issues and exciting treatment advances. More than 100 company presentations are already scheduled. Here's what Philip Ross, global chairman of JP Morgan Healthcare Investment Banking, had to say. Quote, 
The Bio CEO and Investor Conference offers a collaborative forum where executives, investors, and industry stakeholders can come together to learn and exchange ideas about innovation in the biopharma ecosystem. Join us February 6 to 9 in New York and virtually. Explore the program and register at bio.org slash CEO. I actually remember your first stat summit. I'm not sure what you called oh, it, right. but it was it was the first meeting of the staff. So this would have been after we had first talked and I came out to Boston and I suddenly meet Helen Branswell and Sharon Begley and Ed Silverman and, and some of your bright young people that you had hired, like Rebecca Robbins and Andrew Joseph. And I really thought, holy smoke, like this is really happening. You've got that mission for quality health science and you've got people on board who can execute on this. I didn't think that the whole strategy was figured out or the business model was like still a work in progress. But I thought, gosh, you, you really do have a, a dedicated mission, some smart people to deliver on this. And I, I think you're going to figure things out as you, as you go. I really, I really love that spirit that you had in that room. No, it's a great memory of that that summit. And we had our first, and because of COVID and because we became, a lot of our people ended up being, you know, all over the country. We didn't, we, we didn't have anything like that summit, like internal summit again until this past November where we brought together staff from all over the country, the country. And we, we talked about that, that, that summer of 2015 when we all came together, which was really a memorable experience. So can you talk a little bit about the business model, like what it was in the beginning and how it has evolved? Yeah, well, sort of the 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 philosophy of John Henry was, you know, I was a little nervous about like, how's this all going to work? What are we going to do? And his his view was people will pay for great journalism, if not, God help us all kind of philosophy. So. So I, and that's what I wanted to do. We we saw a lot of, you know, in this space, as you know, a lot of academic publications, a lot of trade publications, a lot of the you know, consumer publications like WebMD. And then you have like the high end, like journalistic places like the New Yorker and the Journal and New York Times. But there wasn't any, I any one news outlet devoted whose prime mission was to cover these areas in a very ambitious way every day and not not everything else so we saw an opportunity and we all thought from the very beginning it would be based on people paying for journalism so in the first year what we did was we sort of we had everything was free we had we started our newsletter our morning rounds newsletter actually a couple months before launch so to build an audience and then within the first year we we started stat plus as a pay model subscription model and it was the core person for that was ed silverman of the renowned or farm a lot columnist who who was had done a blog you know for years and had been in the wall street journal and just has you know, always had a, a a great reputation, and he seemed like a logical sort of anchor for Stat Plus. So we started Stat Plus, and I had no idea. Like you start something, and you think, you know, as you know, Luke, how this works. Like I thought, like, are people going to pay for this? Like I have no idea. How does this? What if? What if three people sign up? Like I had no idea. But, I was nervous for you guys, like in the beginning, when when you were building the audience and giving it away for free. I thought, oh, don't give it all away for free because we were, you know, there was a consumer expectation among readers yeah. that all this great journalism is free. It's just like grows on trees, and I don't need to support it. And and I I and I think others felt like, gosh, we've got to affect some kind of behavior change on the part yeah. of the the reader that. You know, and figuring out like where to meet them in a place yeah. that was mutually agreeable. Like we're not going to charge you $2,000 a year might be too much, but the same thing happened with music and right. there needed to be a new model. And you're, you're alluding to it here that there was going to have to be a subscription component with stat plus. Right. right. And luckily it, 
it worked. And I mean, it, it it's taken a while to to build out, but it but it's worked. And so when you ask what our what our revenue model is, it's it's a combination. It's frankly, our goal is to have subscriptions as our primary revenue stream, but to have many re- revenue streams. But right now, the dominant revenue stream is advertising, and it's like our sponsored content, our newsletters, and our stories. And then it's subscriptions, and then it's events, and then to a much lesser extent, it's other things like found, like grant money and so forth. We felt strongly that we didn't want to rely, you know, and it's your philosophy too. We don't want to rely on advertising, given the economy, given what we the failures we've seen out there. So we've really been trying to put a big emphasis on subscriptions. And we have, you know, we have hundreds of group subscriptions now where a whole like university or federal agency or or pharma company, whatever, will buy a a a subscription for the whole place or for for many of its members. So we're doing well with with subscriptions, but advertising is still number one for us. And okay. the good the good news is all these areas every year since we started, all these areas have gr- are going up. There's been no, there's been, there's growth in all these revenue streams. Well, and it's important that it's a diversified set of revenue streams because right. if one were to go down, another might compensate for it. Or right. it's just not, exactly. you, you don't have all your eggs in one basket. <laughs> right. Well, so can you say a little bit about y- your metrics on your dashboard? Like, how are you doing in terms of number of readers you have on average per month, number of subscribers? We have, we had a, well, let, let me just say the, the pan, we've been profitable since like late 2019 before the pandemic. So we, we've been we built a sort of successful business and we were chugging along and we had in early 2020, we were- well, Okay, so re- re- four, four yeah. years to reach profitability. So yeah. you, you had that runway that we alluded to earlier. Yeah, 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 yeah. And we were looking for always the focus, as I said, on subscriptions rather than scale and huge readership. That was more important to get sort of the right readership and people paying for it. So in early 2020, we had about, I don't know, we were averaging like, I think a, a million and a half unique visitors a month on, which was fine because we were, we didn't need a huge audience. But then when COVID hit, Helen Branswell was way ahead of everyone. And we had a lot of good people on the case. So our people started, they'd never heard of stats, started turning to stats. So in March of 2020, we had 26 million uh unique visitors to the site. So it just was like overwhelmingly suddenly stat was really a go-to place where we had, you know, you know, in the first few months of of 2020, we had hundreds of stories on COVID. So that changed a lot for us in terms of we we decided very early on to make those COVID stories free as a public service. And we weren't really thinking about traffic or whatever. We just thought, let's make them free. But it ended up serving us well because just more people read Stat, got to know about Stat. It helped our subscription business. There was no turning back from that growth from that period. We settled down and plateaued at much lower traffic, like $8 million a month. And now we're down. It depends on the month. I don't know offhand. It could be, it, it, it's sometimes just a few million. But... But we're kind of a hybrid operation because we have both a general broader audience and a paying like very loyal stat plus audience. And about half of our stuff is a little more over half is is paid and the, the rest is free. Our stat plus audience of loyal people paying for subscriptions is is over 30,000. But we reach as I said, millions for our free stuff. We also, in the last couple of years, have now become popular on, we now go on Apple News for our free content. And it's not, un, especially our public health content, it's not unheard of for us to get, you know, a million hits on a, on a stat plus, on a, not stat plus, on a, on a stat story. 
So we have kind of a mixed audience. We have the loyal paying audience. We have people coming to our site. And then we have, for for some of our free stuff, we have this tremendous audience on Apple. Okay, so you have this a uh, couple different kinds of of readers here. How else did this COVID experience change your operation? I mean, it it brought in a whole lot of visibility and some growth. It's what has it enabled you to do? Before COVID happened, for 2020, that year we had events planned around the country, and we were worried that this would <clears throat> that COVID would kill our events business as it did for many other places. But I think because of our credibility and our knowledge of COVID and all that stuff, people still wanted to go to stat events, even though we did them virtually. So we it, we kind of on the fly, like remade our events business. And, and most of our events now are still are back to, you know, in person. But we did learn from COVID how to how to re rethink our events business. We, you know, we re just like every everyone else. We our reporting changed because we couldn't for a long time do you know in person reporting and interviews. So it's it's changed all that. And and I would say in the enduring legacy of it is just more people, as I mentioned know about stat and turn to stat and it's given us a, an awareness and a credibility that that we didn't quite have we had the credibility but it was a much smaller pool of readers so you've been able to grow the business a bit and make some hires what's your strategy there where do you see the the growth opportunities for stat well we've we've in the last year or so we've sort of we've broadened out like we started with you know biotech life sciences politics and policy we've and well in the last few years we've added health tech which is a very successful area for us journalistically and readers really want that and we've done events a lot of events around health tech so that's a growing area for us we just hired this week who's someone starting next month who's going to be covering medical devices, which is a whole new beat for us that we've never done before because we think it's sort of an extension of the health tech coverage. We think that there's a real, there are lots of fascinating stories there that are important to people. So we're expanding there. We've expanded our disease coverage and our non-infectious disease coverage. We added a cancer reporter last year and a lot of places don't have cancer reporters. We just, you know, or I don't, I don't really know of any. They'd have like we we had several reporters, and we have now who cover cancer. Every cancer is, you know, a part of covering health and medicine, a big part. But but Angus is just to focus squarely on cancer, which is so we're we're seeing areas of growth and going deeper in coverage areas. We just hired a couple. Of, Weeks ago, a cardio reporter Elaine Chen in New York, who covers cardiovascular, who's like that's her 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 sole focus. We have a, a reporter who covers non-infectious diseases. We have a reporter now covering commercial determinants of health. We have a reporter covering addiction. We added two really great reporters in the last year covering hospitals and providers, Bob Herman and Tara Banow, uh, who are both really great top reporters in that space. So so we're expanding in all these areas. We're also opening our first international bureau next year in London because we see a lot of biotech and just health stories there overseas that we want just to just hearing hearing you describe this, Rick, I'm thinking these are all interesting areas within healthcare that where there are important stories that are largely undercovered right by right. by by national media this this sounds like the the theme here right right and for all these stories like when we hired angus to cover cancer i you know he has a spreadsheet of like dozens of stories and we're trying to sort of winnow down what to cover but i said we could have five cancer reporters you know covering this we could there's so many stories 
as a newsroom leader, do you get much involved in day-to-day coverage or editing copy, or is, are you leaving, leaving most of this to others on your staff? I'm actually involved both in editorial and the business. So I sort of toggle back and forth with myself and Angus McCauley, who's, you know, who you know Angus, our uh, COO. And so I'm pretty involved in everything. And I think part of, I hope our success is we, even though we don't, we're very careful to draw lines between editorial and business, we we work together very well and we respect each other. So we can put, we're small enough that we can, you know, we can share ideas for coverage and, and also building the business. So in terms of my editorial role, I go to all the, the daily, we have two daily news meetings every day. I go to those and I'm involved and I edit some, like I top edit some of the stories that I'm more interested in or that I ask for or whatever, but I'm not, that involved i'm usually not reading editing stories day to day but but here and there i will edit the top of stories or go through them what's your actual headcount at these days it's a little over 100 for the entire uh-huh. for the entire operation the entire company that includes the business side not yeah, just yeah. newsroom right and you're there in the boston globe building in downtown boston right right we have a a whole side of the building, like a whole kind of wing where stat is, where we have, we have room for, we have seats in Boston for about 55 people and the rest are scattered around the country. And of course, what we do is easy to do remote. And I imagine you'll continue to do that as you grow. So you're, you're mining a lot of these vertical domains within healthcare, but as a reader, I, I don't necessarily get the sense that STAT is trying to be comprehensive. In other words, shoot everything that moves, cover every single press release, or be like your total one-stop shop. Is that right? And how, how, I guess, how would you describe your editorial philosophy? Now, that's a good question. There are other publications that cover everything that moves. And we've thought about that. And you know, who knows, we might do that some someday, but we we pride ourselves on on people writing ambitious stories that are gonna sort of move the conversation and watchdog kinds of stories on on the the people and the companies and institutions providing healthcare. And so we take that mission really seriously. And so so we're not we're so we're really not trying to be all things to all people. And we're, we're, we view ourselves as fearless in sort of not being afraid to, to write stories that are controversial. And, and that's one benefit of building different revenue streams and models. If like someone, you know, people buy subscriptions and it's like, it's, it protects you from the whims of, someone you're writing about who might not want to advertise with you or something like that. It's really important to have that kind of stability to, to give you the, the ability to run that hard hitting investigation. And and one thing that we, that we, when you ask about our philosophy, we want to be, we don't always, we know we won't always be liked in everything we write, but we want to be seen as serious and credible and sort of meticulous in our coverage and ambitious. And one, I think one, just one little sign of that is like years back when we wrote about how the IBM Watson for cancer operation was sort of a lot of smoke and mirrors. And we also sued Purdue Pharma for, you know, for in, for in a years long lawsuit that we won that led them to reveal documents about how they were they were marketing OxyContin. Those are really big stories that affected those companies. But both companies ended up advertising later in STAT because, <laughs> and so it kind of shows how it all comes around because it's like, you know, par- partly in those places, there are probably new people coming in, but also, you know, they know they, they, they want, they want to read, they, they want to reach our readers and we're viewed as serious and credible. So that's very important to, to us. 
you know what it reminds me of, Rick? Like what you've got here now looks a lot like an old newspaper. <laughs> There's a mix of breaking news, ambitiously reported features, the occasional investigation. You know, you have some fun every once in a while, you know, an entertaining piece, like fraud of sports section say. But there's a bundle here and there's a there's a balance. Right. No, I think you're right. I hadn't ever I haven't ever thought about it that way. But I mean, I guess that's kind of my history of being like liking kind of a mix of things. And that's what I grew up doing. And we want to inform and surprise readers and and write hard hitting pieces. But I also love really interesting profiles and behind the scenes kinds of pieces. And so so we we really I, I mean, the most important thing is we are we work really hard and very ambitious in what we take on. And we you know, when I you know, as I said, I don't always edit a piece, but when I edit a story, I don't my expectation of from my reporters is no different from how I would edit this or deal with the reporter when I was at The New York Times. It's the same thing i have very like we don't cut corners we we you know we i see us playing in the big leagues even though we have you know a relatively smaller staff well and this comes back to that business stability though by having a stable business you you've got the luxury of time so you don't need to have your step breathe down the neck of your staff and say turn out you know eight articles a day <laughs> that are 200 words or less or so, clicky headlines and all that you you can let them make the extra phone call right. spend that extra time getting the facts nailed down and expressed in the clearest form possible well there, there are two things here i think that's true and i think the, the one thing that sort of backs up that approach is that i've been very happy about is our big, you know, stat plus subscriber stories are then people buying subscriptions from stat are when we do not day to day stories, but our deeper watchdog investigative, our biggest, you know, stat plus most popular story this year was our story, our months long investigation of the, this scientist at the University of Pennsylvania who was there were all, all kinds of allegations around like when we try to go deep and do these bigger investigations people value that and will pay for that coverage so that's that's really heartening for that us. is really really encouraging that you're able to get rewarded in in the business world for what you and I would call traditional quality journalism and that was just not obvious when right. you were getting this thing started in the mid 2010s and I was venturing off into doing right. my thing. The incentives were not there. Right, right. It's and much, we, much better now. Right, right. And we do see people pay for journalism that they can't get anywhere else. What do you think is the biggest thing that you're up against still in the next, say, I don't know, five or 10 years as you think about the future of STAT? The well, one challenge we have is sort of the growing pains challenge of of part of our success is we've been we've all worked very collaboratively and close closely together. And the trick is to keep this growth and ambition without turning into some kind of bureaucracy that that changes the culture of our operation or changes. So that's just one thing that we're always thinking about. And, you know, it's growth is, it's really fun to sort of build and add these new coverage areas, but it's also, it's hard. It's a lot of work to figure out, okay, where do we, where do we invest? What do we do? Do we add podcasts? Do we do more multimedia? Do we do like, there's always 20 things that I want to do that we don't have the bandwidth to add on because we just don't, there's so much, we have so much appetite. So those are some of the, the challenges ahead. And obviously, you know, we'll see what happens with the economy and the, you know, and the, the world of, of biotech. But one thing that, that was important to me that when you talk about people having months or weeks or whatever to work on a story, I mean, there's, there's two guiding competing sort of points here where we wanted, I wanted 
I, I thought that a lot of reporting in this area was frankly a little boring and too earnest in sort of medicine and health. And so I wanted STAT to be more ambitious, newsy, and more of the moment. But I also am well aware that the, this, these areas are very complicated. And, and I think one of the reasons we did well with COVID is, as, as you know, that like you can't just throw a reporter on sort of vaccine development who won't understand it. And you can't, you know, we've had reporters that have spent years covering these issues. So it's it's been this tension and balance in a good way of my wanting us to move fast on stories faster than other people, but also not ever doing anything that's going to risk our credibility. And that's one reason why from the very get-go, we hired a lot of really talented people who knew what they were doing, like, you know, like Sharon Bagley and, you know, and then, you know, we brought on, you know, Matt Herburn, Adam Feuerstein and, you know, Helen Branswell, of course, and just just a whole Ed Silverman, just a whole raft of people who've been covering these fields for years, if not decades. Yeah. Hiring these excellent people has, I mean, that really, that is a credit to you that you were able to identify them and and successfully recruit them. Yeah. The fact that you got Helen Branswell on board in 2015 may not have seen like the most sage decision in the world at that time. I mean, infectious disease coverage was, eh, you know, not not the biggest traffic driver. But come 2020, that becomes very, very important. And there's a flight to quality, right. as you described. Funny you mentioned Adam. Adam and Matt, I think of as contemporaries. I know and like those guys and respect their work a lot. But, you know, Adam in particular is a little bit controversial to some. So what would you say Adam is really like other than what you see on Twitter? Well, I, I would say when Adam, when we started STAT, Adam came to to see me. And as I was talking about people to hire, and I and I said to Adam, like I immediately knew how smart he was, but also knew that he was kind of controversial. And so I thought like, so I, I was very candid with him. I said, I'm either going to hire you or have us write a profile of you. And, uh, and probably we'll go with the profile. So I kind of signaled that like, you're a hot potato kind of thing. So I went ahead and had Rebecca Robbins write a profile of him. And I said, leave no stone unturned. And she came back and wrote a really good profile that you can still on the site that, and she said, you know, he's, and she's, she's, as you mentioned before, she's now at the New York times and she was one of our, our, our great hires at the beginning. She said, you know, he's really good and he really knows what he's doing. And he's really like, she just came away. She's no easy. She's no pushover. And she came away with a, great, great respect for what he's done journalistically. And that sort of unexpectedly led me to use that as essentially his reference for me to hire him. Because <laughs> I thought he could, <laughs> it was a job get, interview that he didn't realize. <laughs> you know, like he didn't realize like that was my vetting effort. I mean, of course I talked to other people, but like the so that story. So anyway, so I ended up hiring him and so when you ask, I mean, you, you, you know him, I mean, he can be, and I, you know, I don't mind him hearing me say this. He's like, he can be a little trigger happy on Twitter, but, yeah. but he is really smart and knowledgeable and really fair minded in his coverage. I mean, I've seen him sweat over how he fairness issues and how he treats people and how he wants to protect sources that are going off on a limb for him. And, and, the 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 one of the nice surprises that I didn't expect is he's a he's a wonderful colleague and team player at Stat, and he really works well with others on the team. So he's that is been, one thing that I've really noticed too. He was something of a lone wolf in his previous stop, and I talked with him a little bit before joining Stat, and I said, you know, there's a really good team there. And I think you're going to like him. And it's been really cool to see, I think, how he has bonded with your staff and and maybe even providing a mentoring role. He's a great mentor. And when we started, like, I didn't know what to expect. I had expect I had him sit across from 
Damien Gardet, who was here first covering biotech. And I thought, like, I hope Damien gets along with them, you know, because Damien's like, everyone loves Damien. He's cool as a cucumber. And, but they hit it off right away. And then, so they're sitting there with, at the time, Rebecca Robbins. And I'd hear the three of them talk about biotech. And I, and that's when we led to like, let's turn this into a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Running with the ideas as they as they percolate organically. Right. This is what you can right. do at a startup, maybe right. not a hundred year old media company. Rick Burke, thank you so much for joining me today on the long run. Thanks for all your smart questions. You're you're pulling me back to my the early days of stat, which is kind of it's kind of fun to talk about. So I, I appreciate your your indulging me and in talking about the history here. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.